A goal is a dream with a plan. Your money will take care of you if you take care of it. Proper prior planning prevents poor performances. Life is good without debt. If you don't make the right financial choices, you're not going to have money for long. We are the hero in our life. Small changes change the world. Welcome to this anniversary edition of Sensible Chat. Over the years, Sensible Bobby has had the opportunity to chat with some of the brightest minds in personal finance. Trust me, you're going to want to keep this episode because there are some great words of wisdom coming your way. So let's get to the maven of money, the nanny of the note, the boss of budgeting. Here is Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. And thank you for joining me for the last two years. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of learning, and a lot of sharing. Which brings me to this anniversary episode. I've been fortunate to chat with a lot of experts in the world of money, and the knowledge I've gained from them is overwhelming. Trust me when I say that putting together this episode was one of my toughest editing assignments because of the vast amount of information I had to choose from. Of course, you can hear all the episodes in their entirety at sensiblechat.com. With that said, I'm excited to share these highlights with you, and I hope they motivate the change in you that they have in me. The first person I interviewed was Michelle Kagan. She's a CPA and has authored a ton of great books, including Budgeting 101, Retirement 101, and Debt 101. The first episode she was on was titled Budgeting 101, and we talked about many of the great budgeting tips and tools she covers in the book. But here are some highlights of specific tips she shared on saving money and paying down debt. When you are desperate and you need some cash and you don't have enough money to tide you over till payday, one of the things to do is reduce your withholding tax to the barest minimum. And yeah, you may owe some taxes at the end of the year, but it's better than having your electricity shut off right now. You know, if you normally get a thousand dollar refund, that's 83 extra dollars every month. There's a tool. It's the withholding calculator. It's a free tool on the IRS website. And it sort of lets you know if what you've been paying in estimated taxes or haven't taken out with withholding is going to cover you for the year. If you can stop paying bank fees, that's more money you get to keep. Even if it's $2 or $5 or $10 more, always make more than a minimum payment. Directing any extra money you have to paying down debt is going to reduce your interest payments, which is going to make it easier to pay down because you're paying interest on interest when you have credit card debt. Anything you can do to reduce that is going to reduce the total amount you owe. It's going to get rid of your credit card debt so much faster. If you have high credit card debt, you can call your credit card company and say to them, look, I cannot afford to pay this whole thing. And I can't afford with the interest in the penalties that are piling up. Can we work out some kind of payment plan? Most medical companies, if you just talk to them, will negotiate with you and you can do that yourself. Brent Mix was my second interview. He wrote the book, The Frequency of Wealth. And during his interview, he explained how strategic distraction can bring you wealth. When I thought about money, I always felt fear, anxiety, stress. Anything that makes me forget time works. And we can all know experiences like that. Going to the movies, watching funny movies. It's moving me up the scale so I can experience the wealth that's already here. And that'll start showing up like, I hate my job and maybe a new one comes to me. You don't have to start quitting your job or relationship. What you can do is you just start to get happy. You're going to start seeing all these like really interesting things happen. It's like stuff will come to you because you've heard about it a lot, a lot of attraction that which is like unto itself is drawn. But it's exactly right. These things will be drawn to you when you live down market into shape. 
shame, guilt, fear, things to be afraid of will be drawn to you. Circumstances to be afraid of will be drawn to you. Circumstances to be stressed out about for you individually. You're admitting that signal. It's drawing all of that to you. When you move up market and you get into joy, love, well-being, when you feel calm and peace, it's drawing these things. What did you want the billions of dollars for? To feel the absence of fear or feel powerful. And those things will be drawn to you. Those circumstances uniquely designed to light you up will be drawn into your experience. You don't have to go out there to go get them. Michelle Kagan joined me again around tax time and shared some of the tax breaks available for the not-so-rich. The earned income tax credit is sort of like a tax assistance for people who have lower income. The regular child tax credit is up to $2,000 per child. If you have a dependent who's not a child, for example, an 18-year-old who's in college, who doesn't count as a child anymore, but is still dependent on you, you get a $500 tax credit for that. Like if you support your parent, anyone you pay more than half of the support for who lives in your household, you'll get a $500 tax credit. The dependent care credit is for if you're paying for daycare, summer camp, you need some kind of care for a child who's under 13 or an adult or other dependent who can't take care of themselves. The safest credit is for if you put some money into a retirement plan. If you're single, it's up to $2,000. And if you're married and filing jointly, it's up to $4,000. And you get a credit for a percentage of your contributions to retirement plan. And it's a tax credit. So it doesn't lower your income. It lowers the actual tax bill. Tax credits are always better than deductions. A health savings account lets you put pre-tax dollars into a special account that you can use for medical expenses. And you don't lose that money at the end of the year. You can keep it forever. You can invest it so it grows. And as long as you use the money for qualified medical expenses, you never have to pay tax on it or any of the income that it earns. The American Opportunity Credit goes toward tuition. You have to be a full-time student. The Lifetime Learning Credit, you don't have to be a full-time student. It covers tuition and fees, and you can get up to $2,000 tax credit. So this is a deduction, not a credit. Many people can claim up to $2,500 of student loan interest. Next, I spoke with Yoonha McDowell, co-founder of SavingSense.org, about her favorite ways to save money on groceries. Shop your pantry, your freezer, and fridge. Meal planning. Make a list and stick to it. You can get some great deals if you buy in bulk. Always check the unit price. If you don't have the space for it, you can still get the great deals by splitting something with a friend. Shopping the season is huge for your budget. You'll get the best seasonal produce for the lowest price. If you're ever curious about what food or produce is in season, check out the website seasonalfoodguide.org. Shop for things that aren't packaged individually. If you bought the same thing, but in the bigger bag and then separate them yourself, so much cheaper. If you can help it, you have to shop alone. Only go once a week if you can help it. The more times you go to the grocery store, the more times you are going to probably buy something that you didn't necessarily need. If all of this information is really overwhelming, just start with one thing at a time. So you can just start by meal planning at first or making a list and just sticking to it. Try a delivery service or one of those pickup services 
Tony Bradshaw wrote The Millionaire Choice. And during our interview, he shared how he breaks down budgets into the four categories that matter most if you're trying to build wealth. You need to know how much money you're spending just to put food on the table, pay the bills, keep the electricity on, the water going. The next most important numbers are your wealth money. When you want to live life the way you want to, you need to have wealth money. You need to be having money flow into there. And so you want that wealth money category to be as high as possible. When you start thinking in a different way, you go, okay, I need to keep my living money as low as possible, but I need to make my wealth money as high as possible. You know, you start looking at life a little bit differently, especially when it comes to your finances. So the other two buckets are play money and other money. You got to have some fun in life. You're going to wither up and die. And so that could be, you know, going out to eat, taking your wife out to a movie. Your other money is anything else that fits. So I like throw birthday presents and stuff in the other money bucket because if worse comes to worse, I don't have to spend that money on anything. And that allows you to look at your spending plan a different way. It goes, hey, is anything out of balance here? Because those are my four categories. If you're spending $3,000 a month on your play money and you got zero in your wealth money, you, you might be out of balance. Right. Tom Antion, host of the Screw the Commute podcast, explained how to use multiple income streams as insurance. In this clip, he shares insights on how smart millionaires spend their money. One of my vehicles is a 2002 Dodge Ram pickup truck. And everybody's saying, why don't you get rid of that, get a new one? Why? It's got 30,000 miles on it and it's old, but I take care of it. My dad also taught me, take care of your stuff. So it's perfect condition. I don't care. Getting caught up with the Joneses stuff will kill a lot of people too, where I stay away from the Joneses. (laughs) Let them pay 30% interest on crap. You'll spend way more in the long run if you buy junk, that's for sure. But everything that you buy doesn't need to be super high quality. You know, like the pee pads we buy for the dog. I'm not sure if I've done any real deep testing on them, (laughs) but the the dog seemed to like them. So that's good enough. I'm going to buy the cheapest ones I can. But on the crate, I bought a real solid, good crate because that's going to last for years and years and years. So you have to also be able to discern where do you need to buy quality and where can you just get something to get by that gets the job done. Taylor Brown wrote a song called Cash Flow, and it won the American Bankers Association contest Lights, Camera, Save. She joined me to share what she learned in her personal finance class about saving money. When it comes to saving, the sooner the better. It's amazing how big of a difference five to 10 years can make as far as like growth of investments and savings. So I know that in order to comfortably finance my education, future car, mortgage, especially retirement, I know that it's so important for me to start saving and building my credit now because you never know when even emergencies and things will arise where it's just so wise to have money that you can use to contribute to those things because you never know. (laughs) Life is crazy. There's always many things you need to worry about with your money. So the sooner the better. It's all about the work that you put in because I think that saving and retirement, all these things can be very daunting, especially for people my age. But I think it's comforting to know that if you put in the work and you're wise with how you're saving your money, that anything is achievable and you can definitely accomplish your dreams. Don't be embarrassed to ask questions and reach out to people for resources and information because it's so important to have an understanding in order to make educated decisions. So I think it's just important to kind of take that first step and be like, okay, I need some help. And then just taking your time with decisions and keeping finances in mind, even when other things are maybe more prominent in your mind right now, kind of keeping the long-term goal in view so that you can make the best choice for your future. Claire Dubay is a financial therapist. We chatted during wedding season about how couples can have successful conversations about money, especially when they're planning a wedding. Just have a couple of questions that you want to answer. Don't try and solve everything all at once, but you know, start with some basic. If you're engaged, you 
what is your idea of a wedding? What is your idea of the budget for the wedding? What is important to you? Is it having family all around or is it really to make it look like spectacular? You know, just start with some basic questions a few at a time because you don't want to get overwhelmed and go down a rabbit hole. So start with the immediate things that are coming up. And in that conversation would then follow with the, okay, well, let's not spend a lot of money on this wedding because we want to look at buying a house. If you base it on things that are transitions and use those as the base, then you can spiral off all questions off of that. Jeff Soha is a financial advisor who shared some great ideas to teach kids about money. I especially loved his idea for an alternative to traditional allowance. You could create a reward system for your kid, a point system. You're doing chores around the house and you get so many points and then you can save those points up and you can cash them in. I mean, look at how motivating all of the reward systems are out there today. So you can create your own internally and say, hey, at our house, when you put up the dishes, you get so many points. When you take out the trash, you get so many points. And, you know, it could be simple things. Once you get enough points, you can have a friend come spend the night or we can take you out for an ice cream. So it doesn't have to be really elaborate, but you're starting to teach them that there's this exchange between work and money and money and the things that they want. And if they don't have enough, then the answer needs to be no. And so I think even at a young age, if you're teaching them something, whether it's a point system or you're giving them some money based on chores or or work that you give them, then when they come and say, I need money to go to the movies with my friends, the answer can be, well, why are you asking me? Why don't you use the money that you have? And then if they say, well, I don't have any, say, okay, well, that's a different problem. I'm still not going to give you the money, but I can give you some work to do where you can earn the money. So I think maybe a little tough love there really helps. Emily Guy Birkin wrote a great book called End Financial Stress Now. And I love that the ideas she provides are things that anyone at any income level can do. And a lot of it's about the mindset, not the dollars. But here's a piece on how to plan for emergencies on the tightest of budgets and why it's important. A lot of times with budgeting, particularly if you don't have much money, you budget every single penny that comes in and you assume that everything will go perfectly at all times. So any emergency will have like echo effects in every aspect of your finances. If, for instance, your car breaks down and you have to use your rent money to pay to get your car fixed, then where are you going to get your rent money? Well, if you're going to take that from your utility money, then where are you going to get your utility money? So you need to have some slack in your budget. You need to assume that something bad will happen. Now, the problem is if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you think, well, I can't build slack in my budget. Every single penny is accounted for. So start by opening a savings account and automatically transferring something small, like $10 a week into that savings account. The other thing that I recommend is think through if something really terrible happens, what would you do that you don't want to do? And I'm talking about stuff like talk to your mother-in-law who is so snippy, but has money and would lend it to you. Just you never hear the end of it at Thanksgiving. Sell the pinball machine that you absolutely love. What is the thing that you would do if you absolutely had to get some money? Recognize what that is, the cost that it will be to you, but know that that is there before the stuff has hit the fan. When money is tight, buying a car can be really stressful. You don't have a lot of money to spend, yet you don't want to end up with a two-ton paperweight. So I asked car broker Hugh Allen for some tips on buying a car, paying for extras, and getting the most from your trade-in. 
plan for the next vehicle so that you're not having to buy it because you have nothing to get to work in. Put yourself in a position where you can take action when you need to, but you're not under stress to. At a certain point, the car just has no more value and you'll end up spending money on repairs where the repairs are worth more than the vehicle. You know, when 120 comes around, I need to start putting away some money so that by the time it gets to 150, it still has some life in it versus driving it to 205 or 210 and it being completely worthless. Most extended warranties are underwritten by insurance companies. So you don't have to get the extended warranty through the dealer. You can do a Google search of extended warranties, pull up five different companies and call them for quotes. Be clear about your budget, what you are planning to spend either in cash or on a monthly basis for your vehicle. If someone's offering you something extra, you really have to weigh out, is it worth it? If your car looks raggedy, doesn't look well kept, or it's got check engine lights on, you're not going to get the maximum value for your vehicle. So get your car cleaned up before you go in to either trade it in or look to get an offer. Make it look good. And if it has a warning light, hey, run by your mechanic and say, hey, you know, what would it cost to take care of this? Car insurance is one of those necessary evils you want to spend as little as possible on while still getting the right coverage. But what's the one factor that has the single biggest impact on how much you'll pay? Andrew Rose is president and CEO of Compare.com. During our conversation, he answered that question and shared a few other cost-saving tips. It's something called an insurance score. And it's north of 95% of insurance companies use this. It is your credit information used differently than a credit score, but in a similar manner. It takes the financial responsibility you demonstrate in your financial life and says, hey, there's a correlation between good financial responsibility and good driving responsibility. So if you tend to have bad credit, you're going to pay a whole heck of a lot more for insurance. If you've got really good credit, you're going to tend to pay a whole lot less for it. It's the single biggest factor. So if you're out there monitoring your credit and it improves dramatically, shop your insurance. It likely will have gone down. I tell folks in general, as your vehicle ages, up your deductibles because the price differential you'll pay for that added coverage really isn't worth it when you think about how infrequent accidents ultimately occur. So the main advice I give you are two things. You got to look at how much the prices are and factor in your budget. And as your vehicles get older, raise your deductibles. Molly McKenna canceled her wedding after being hit with a huge medical bill that her insurance didn't cover. But she was able to negotiate a $12,000 bill down to $3,500. I asked her how she did it. Basically, I called them and I said, hey, I found this policy on your website that states that if I have an excessive bill after insurance pays out, I have a 40% discount that I'm eligible for. And she said, sure, yeah, we can do that for you. And I said, great. And I said, is it possible for me to pay that in monthly installments? And she said, no, unfortunately, you have to pick one or the other. And I just said, well, I'll tell you what. I can't do it at a 40%, but I had 3500 that was really set aside for our wedding. But I said, I have this amount. I can pay you that. Would this be enough to zero up the balance? And she just said, yeah, I can do that. The best advice that I can give is to read your insurance policy, ask a lot of questions, prepare yourself beforehand for an emergency, know exactly where you can go in an emergency situation, advocate for yourself, reach out and ask for help. 
If you're in financial trouble, you may be considering bankruptcy, but how do you know if it's the best option? That was the topic when I spoke to bankruptcy attorney Don Golden. Here are his thoughts on when it might be time and who you can turn to for an honest assessment. I've seen this time and time again over my career where people hang on for as long as they can because I think most people don't want to file and they do everything they can to avoid it. So people put it off and put it off and put it off when really the handwriting's been on the wall for a long time. And people will absolutely go through their entire savings in order to try to avoid bankruptcy. And that just breaks my heart because in most places, retirement income is an exempt asset, which means if you file bankruptcy, you get to keep it. And so it just really hurts me to see people spending all their money that they've put away for their future you know, to try to service debt that they really can't can't afford. But there certainly are circumstances where people could buckle down and do a budget and things like that and maybe try to work their way out of it. And certainly one of the key things is if you get sued by a creditor, if you fall behind on a debt and you get sued, it's probably time to consider bankruptcy or at least talking to a lawyer to see what your options are. At that point, wage garnishments probably coming up shortly, you know, after a lawsuit, if they get a judgment. And that's just devastating to people to have their wages garnished. So that's certainly some time where I would definitely consider strongly bankruptcy. The nonprofit consumer credit counseling companies are generally reputable and you can trust them. And they will tell you if they can help you with a debt management plan or something like that to help reduce the payments you're making on the credit cards. And then other times they're going to just tell you, I'm sorry, but you know, there's really nothing that we can do for you. You need to consider bankruptcy as an option. An honest bankruptcy lawyer could evaluate your situation as well and tell you whether or not they think that bankruptcy is the best option. Student loan debt is crippling so many people in our society today. But can you avoid it and still get an education? Ramsey personality Anthony O'Neill says absolutely. He wrote a fantastic book called Debt-Free Degree that provides a ton of options and strategies for doing it and shared a lot of those during his interview. In this clip, I challenged him to list all the ways you can go to college debt-free off the top of his head. Then he talked about the biggest pitfalls of student loan debt. You have community college, you have pay cash for college, you have trade schools, you have tech schools. You can work, you can get scholarships, you can get grants, you can get parent assistance from 529 to ESAs. Maybe you can get church scholarships and church support. There's so many different ways out there. I mean, the biggest pitfall of student loan debt is, is setting our young people up for failure. I just met a young lady and I call her young, but she's actually 88 years old and she's still paying for her student loans from back in her 20s. The average student loan borrower thinks that when they graduate college, they'll be able to pay off their student loans within two years. But studies are showing us 12 years after they graduate college, they still owe 65% of the student loan balance plus interest. Now, when we go even deeper, the minority community still owes 113%. So we're looking at the average person is in between 65% to 113% still owed 12 years after school. Healthcare is such a confusing maze. How do we know the best insurance plan to choose and how can we save money on care? I dived deep into this with Scott Heiser, author of Healthcare is Making Me Sick. In this clip, he shares ways we can cut costs on prescription medications. The first one is, is there a generic available? If generic's not available, then I've got a branded drug. Is this a single source branded drug? Meaning it's the only branded drug out there that treats the situation. If it's not, are there other branded drugs? Let's look at them all in this category and say, what's the best one too? And which is the best one I should take? And engage the doctor with that. And why does he or she think that the one he or she has prescribed the one for you? And then even if you've got a branded drug or a single source drug, the next thing you want to do in this day and age is you go online, there's discount coupon cards. You should look at a number of them 
every single time because they oftentimes will get a lower price than the insurance plan's price that you got through your insurance company where they brought the insurance company to negotiate a discount. You can get more off of that. Then the third way you do it is a program called patient assistant programs. These are the manufacturers of the drugs offering programs. And it's generally revolves around people who have lower income or high deductible plans or a combination of the two. Rx Hope is a website and they list approximately over 330 drugs that have these programs. They change. They're not locked in. They're not guaranteed. They may be for a 12-month, 24-month period or something like that. And they have their own financial requirements. But it's for a phone call, if you could cut a drug cost from $700 to $35, why not make a phone call? Daphne Wiswell and her family were on a mission to pay off debt after losing a six-figure income overnight. Her episode was called Gratitude and a Debt-Free Journey. And we spent a lot of time discussing how shifting your mindset and focusing on what's important went a long way toward reaching her goals. In this clip, she shares some specific things her family did to speed up the debt payoff process. We took on work at the RV community where we were staying so that the site that we had and the electricity and and all of the different utilities became completely free. Then we sold my car. Then we did some crazy things like, okay, we're not going to buy paper towels for a year and no paper plates. You know, we had our Keurig coffee maker and you'd get the little K cups or whatever. And we were like, okay, that's more expensive than if we just bought a drip coffee maker and had a bag of coffee. We made a bunch. You know what I mean? That was our plan is to just look at everything we were doing that we could change change or eliminate or, you know, how could we add money to our bank account? We really started to get excited about seeing the numbers that we owe different creditors go way, way down in our bank accounts. And it just became a lot of fun and things like that. You don't think about it when you're not thinking about it. Paul Vassie created a personal finance board game called Cash Crunch Jr. The first time I spoke with him was on the Gift of Financial Literacy episode. We talked about alternative spending during the holidays and how parents can educate their kids and become more intentional about their spending at the same time. It's the best thing that you can actually teach a child that they've got to look after every penny they have. If they always think that bank of mom and dad are always going to give them money, where's it going to go? I mean, you see students at UCI and all these universities driving BMW as well. What's their next car going to be? Where do they go from there? It's almost like a rite of passage. So you see this like at Thanksgiving and Christmas with parents going into serious amounts of debt and spending the next six months on a credit card, paying it all off. And realistically, a lot of the kids open their presents and throw them away after the next 10 minutes. And how long has it taken a parent to earn that money? How many hours have they spent at work to earn that money to buy that gift that's been discarded and there's no value to it? My wife and I, we don't really buy presents. We actually think of experiences. So we will probably go and do a picnic or we will go on Groupon and we'll do some stained glass windows or we'll do something. It's a memorable experience and it's not about spending money. You know, for a long time, I believed that financial planners were only for the rich, but I was wrong. So for those who still believe it, I talked to Nick Stuller, author of The Truth Shall Set Your Wallet Free and creator of the financial matchmaking website, MyPerfectFinancialAdvisor.com. During this clip, he destroys the myth that financial advisors are only for the rich and explains how his website works. 
It's really a myth that an advisor or planner is only for the wealthy. Only the largest of firms could afford to advertise on TV and newspaper and whatnot. And so the assumption was you have to be wealthy. But there are actually far more advisors that cater to middle-income investors and even lower middle-income than those that help the wealthy. There are hundreds of organizations around this country, both nonprofit and governmental, that support pro bono financial advice. You know, if you are in poverty and you need help, you can reach out to a local agency or a local nonprofit that's focused on financial literacy and get a bona fide, licensed, trained advisor to help you, you know, move out of your situation. Basically, the system is almost akin to the dating site eHarmony, where it uses artificial intelligence and data and the significant securities industry expertise we have to find the perfect advisor for an investor, regardless of how little or much money you have. I've said it many times on this podcast, wouldn't it be great if we could keep our kids from ever getting into the paycheck-to-paycheck cycle? I met a 21-year-old who, together with the help of his parents, has a great chance of sidestepping this vicious cycle. Mark Guberti has been an entrepreneur since age 11 and shared his amazing story and lots of great tips on the episode called It's Never Too Early. In this clip, he talks about how he views the paycheck-to-paycheck cycle. I don't understand why people put themselves in the situation where it's paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I would never do it that way. I feel like it's better to just start a business. I feel like it's better to be able to get clients and be able to have more of an active role in determining how much money you make because at a job, it's pretty set. You work X amount of hours, you get X amount of pay. There's nothing you could really do about it unless you start a side hustle. But I think that happens to people because they view their money as spending money. Like earlier, I said, my only guilty pleasure. Again, if you even want to call it that, it's just like in terms of me spending money on like non-investment stuff is the running. I'm not buying the latest car. I'm not in a rush to get a car either. I would rather have multiple properties under my belt before I buy a single car because X amount of dollars each month you have to pay for a car. That's not going anywhere. Like with a house, you know that you're paying off a mortgage or you get a tenant to pay off the mortgage for you. So I feel like people just don't think about how they're spending their money and they're not putting it to good enough use. And that's why you do have a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck. In 2009, Cassandra Dacent crafted a plan to pay off $55,000 in five years. During our interview, she shared the steps she took to get out of debt, and you can hear all of them on the episode titled 2020, The Year of Perfect Vision. But something that stood out to me was that in addition to cutting spending and making lifestyle changes, she leveraged her income potential and got creative. Here's a clip about how she did it. I was earning below my potential and I learned how to negotiate for raises and use that as added fuel to put on my debt. Also leverage my skills. At the time, I was a singer, songwriter and musician. So I, instead of you know performing for free, well, I'm starting to charge now. The first thing that I started to do was actually pay attention to you know my contributions at work. So not only beyond the expected, but deciding to accept a project that was outside of my comfort zone or realm of expertise, for example. In the beginning, I wasn't 100% confident, but I knew that I had been contributing to the company. It was just to find a way to communicate that effectively and learn to demonstrate it in a way that they can see the value in it. So at the end of the day, I showed that XYZ results generated XYZ dollars. 
And that's what they want to see ultimately is that you're helping them to increase profit, saving money on the other end. You know, managers already have so much pressure on how to deal effectively with their teams that they will notice outliers who make their jobs easier. What can you do that can help your manager or upper management make their job easier? Keisha Blair was young when she lost her husband to a sudden illness. Dealing with his loss from every side led her to write the book Holistic Wealth, which talks about why it's important to look at life and money from every side, or holistically, instead of just focusing on what's directly in front of you. She explains that money is just one resource, but you also have to think of your skills, your contacts, and other factors that can help you in a crisis and move you toward the life you want. In this clip, she talks about the dangers of mindless spending. Even in our spending, if we're being mindless, we're not going to set ourselves up to be financially resilient or resourceful because we think about our near-term needs, and they're very important, like paying the bills, getting new tires on the car. But those aren't the types of things that are going to set us up if tragedy strikes. It's the saving and the investing and being mindful in all of our decisions. So I love the two R's, resourcefulness and resilience. And it's made making sure that in our spending and in our saving and in our investing, we're setting up ourselves to be financially resilient and financially resourceful. So we have to have that balance because if we don't, we're really just satisfying the near term and we're not satisfying that criteria for resilience and resourcefulness, which is extremely important. Gift giving can be a big budget buster. But how do we celebrate special occasions or give gifts to show how much we care and still stay within our budgets so the special occasion doesn't turn into the stress of paying off debt afterwards? Couples financial counselor Adam Cole joined us for the Valentine's Day episode, Love and Money, and I asked what he would say to those who want to celebrate their love on Valentine's Day but don't have a lot of money or are on a strict budget so they can accomplish their bigger financial goals. I think the place to go is to ask what is important to you that your partner shows you on Valentine's Day or around the calendar, around the year, right? What does it mean to you if they were to spend a lot of money on you? I remember once talking to a woman about this who was like, do you think I should keep dating this guy? Like, you know, he doesn't seem to want to spend a lot of money on me. And I asked her, you know, what does it mean to you if he would spend a lot of money on you? And she goes, well, I would take it to mean that he cares about me and he values seeing me and and all of that. And I said, well, is spending money on you the only way that he can do that? And she said, no. She was like, you know, I guess I wouldn't really care if he planned a really nice picnic or something and didn't spend much money on it because it would show that he cares. And so to look and say, well, what matters to me or what would it show if we went and had that expensive fancy night out on the town and then see if there might be other ways for you to show those feelings to each other, right? And I'm pretty sure you'll come up with some options that might give you some flexibility on how much you need to budget. My budgeting and debt-free journey started because of a book called The 60-Minute Money Workout. And I remember laughing at the idea that 60 minutes a week could revolutionize my finances. But I was so desperate for a way out of debt, I read the book anyway, just so I could say I tried, because I was convinced I would fail. Instead, the book changed my life, and now I'm debt-free and loving it. So having the opportunity to interview the author, Ellie Kay, was a true honor. We talked about the stress of having too much month at the end of our money. I asked her what she would say to people who felt that only a big financial windfall could change their situation. 
I don't think we really need to look for the big knight in shining armor, whether it's getting some kind of a windfall, an inheritance, the lottery, a big raise at work, or anything like that. I believe that God is in the details. And I believe that if we look at some of the details in our finances in a new, fresh way, in an intentional way, that we can find some margin in there to improve the way that we're doing money. And that's what we did. We took what we were doing with our money. We looked at ways that we could cut back or improve ourselves in terms of side hustles, things that would generate more income. And we found the margin that we needed. And that encouraged us then to be able to do more things, pay down our debt, build up our savings account. So there really is hope because my family went from 40K in consumer debt when we first got married back in the 80s. And we didn't have a lot of disposable income at all. And yet we were able to pay down all that consumer debt within only two and a half years on one military man's income. And we've been debt free ever since. People of all ages put off retirement planning, either because we think we're too young to worry about it, or we feel like we have no money to put toward it. But maybe if we can see it from a baby step perspective instead of all or nothing, it might be easier to do. So when the day comes that we can no longer work or no longer want to, we don't have to stress about survival. Michelle Kagan's book, Retirement 101, has a lot of great ideas for getting started, and she shared a lot of them during our interview. Here are a few tips. Do something today. Anything, any amount you put today is going to be worth more than money you put in two years from now. Even if you put in $300 or $500 in a whole year, it's more than nothing. And you'll never have more time on your side than you do today. I like to put my money in time buckets what I need soon, what I need medium sort of soon, and what I don't need for a long time. So money I need within a year, that's my soon bucket. Money I need between you know one and five years, that's my medium bucket. Anything I don't need for at least five years is my later bucket. And that helps me figure out what to do with that money because money I need right now, I cannot risk losing a cent of that. That goes into like a bank account. It's not going to earn a lot, but it has no possibility of losing. The medium money, I take a little bit more risk with because there's still some time to build it back up if there's a dip or something, but I still want it in a relatively conservative places because I don't really want to lose it or it could push my timelines back. And the later money, I'm like, all in, just go earn money. I'll see you later. Michelle also authored the book Debt 101. So we did an episode on that where she shared tips for paying off debt, things you need to know and strategies that can help. In this clip, she talks about how to pay off student loan debt. Most people don't realize that although they can start paying their loans back after they graduate, they don't have to wait that long to start paying it back. You can start paying your student loans the day after you get them, and that will reduce the amount of interest that builds up on the loan. That's another thing is a lot of people have loans where interest starts adding on the day they take out the loan, even though they don't have to make payments for another however many years until they stop going to school. So they don't realize that their loans are getting bigger. They're not staying the same. Somebody who borrows $10,000 can end up owing $30,000. People don't realize that you have to start paying your loans back the minute you are not a full-time student anymore. So that means if you have a family emergency and you have to leave school, your loans are due. It's not just after you graduate, it's when you stop going. You hear these amazing debt payoff stories all the time. And while they're truly inspiring, you may still feel overwhelmed at the thought of getting started. 
Ashley Patrick paid off $45,000 in 17 months and is now a financial coach and host of the Money Mindset podcast. So during her episode, we talked about her mindset at the time and how she did it. But during this clip, she shares advice for people who are facing a mound of debt and trying to figure out how to start start with just one thing. So like focus on the smaller goal. So like this week, this is what I'm going to do. And it can be, I'm just going to total up my debt. You know, just start with one thing that moves you in the right direction. Don't think about the big picture. Oh my gosh, I owe $45,000. I'm never going to be able to pay this off. You know, making a goal this week to just do your budget, just write it down and figure out that part of it. You know, and that's the only thing you have to worry about this week, or even you can break it down into one day, like one thing that I can do today. And then just kind of build upon it because as you go, you will just gain momentum and you will go faster and faster. You don't have to jump straight into the debt snowball and cash envelopes and meal planning and like all the things all at once. Like that's just overwhelming. Just focus on one thing this week, then one thing this month, and then, you know, set a a goal for two months and then three months and so on. And you will just build momentum. And then once you start to see the progress, you'll be like, oh my gosh, how can I do this faster and faster? And that's where the progress just gets going. Rich Grant wrote the book, Let's Meet Ms. Money. During the episode, Financial Literacy for Kids, we talked about the lessons in the book and how parents and kids can learn financial literacy together. Then I asked for his opinion on the age-old question, can money buy happiness? In the reading I've done and what I've seen, and actually there's studies that have been done, that to some degree money can buy happiness. And that gets to the point of needs and wants. I think to the extent you have enough money to have what you need, and maybe a little bit more depending upon the person, it buys happiness up to a certain point. If money is all there is in life, that's not going to buy happiness. But if it's there to get your needs and your wants, it does buy happiness. Nobody wants to be poor, but it doesn't mean you need to be ultra wealthy either. So in my mind, there is a happiness effect to having a fair amount of money and knowing how to use it. And I think that's a big issue in today's society too, is knowing how to use the money that you have so that you can become more financially secure. People may have money, but if you don't make the right financial choices, you're not going to have money for long. So people could potentially reduce the income inequality by making the right financial choices. Everybody wants to be their own boss or be the person that makes their destiny. And clearly having the knowledge to do that. And when you talk about financial literacy, it's all about having the right kind of background and knowledge to make the right choices economically. And that's what we all want. We all want to be able to control our own destiny. Jackie Beck is creator of the Payoff Debt app, which she created after navigating her own debt-free journey. During her interview, we talked about her struggles through the process, the motivation that kept her going, and what life is like now. Here are some of her thoughts on life after debt. Well, I think the biggest way our life has changed is that you don't realize what an enormous weight the debt is until it's gone. You just feel so much freer, so much lighter. And we're no longer stressed out about the kinds of things that we used to worry about. Like if my husband got laid off, well, okay, whatever. We just move on. It doesn't, it's not a problem. It's just, you know, when you can live on so little because you don't have all these giant debts hanging over you, it it makes a difference in how you feel and what you're able to do. I mean, we're able to, decide to do things on the spur of the moment that would have taken us like a year to save up for before, it makes a big difference. And in fact, when we did pay off the house, one of the motivations that we used while we were doing it is the things that we were going to be able to do when we were out of debt. And for us, like I had always wanted to go to Antarctica and my husband wanted a sports car. So when we got the house paid off, we spent the next year saving up for those things and we did it. Gina Zachariah is one of the most inspirational people I've interviewed on this podcast. 
Her aha moment with money came when she was 19 in an abusive relationship, penniless and pregnant. Listen to her whole interview on the Be Your Own Hero episode to hear her story of how a jar of pickles changed her life, what she's learned, and how different her life is now. In this clip, she shares what she was thinking during her aha moment. You've made some bad choices. Okay, you're suffering through the consequences right now. Fine. You don't want this life for you. So how do you fix it? How do you get to a point where you make better decisions and actually change the trajectory of your life? It was this pivotal moment of just feeling like I was powerless in my situation and realizing, hey, wait a minute, I hold all the power. I get to make my very next decision to change what's happening in my life. And when I started to realize this, it changed everything for me. Within one year, I was out of that awful relationship and my daughter was thriving. I actually had so much joy. I met my current husband and I literally, I tell people this all the time and they don't believe me. I'm living my dream life because I decided to change the way that I thought about things and that I wasn't going to be a victim of my choices anymore. I got to have that power back and actually change what I did with my life. No one likes to talk about death. And unfortunately, that leads to many of us never planning for it. But when a loved one dies, it can wreak havoc on those left behind, financially and otherwise. For Jennifer Lozado, author of Inheriting Chaos with Compassion, it happened to her not one time, but three. So we spoke a lot about how to navigate through the financial chaos and what you need to know. But then I asked her what we can do today to make it easier on our loved ones in the event of our death. First and foremost is to have a will that's written and legal and all signed and sealed. But the other thing to do is, and we all have different degrees of how organized we are, how overwhelmed we get by paperwork, but to have a single place. And if you're super organized, it would be beautiful to have a notebook that has copies of your bills so that your account numbers are available. So if you have to turn off the power of a house, somebody's moved out, you know, you can easily get to it. All of your investment statements and debts you might have, so your mortgage statement perhaps, it doesn't have to be updated monthly by any means. But if you have that set of clues ready for someone, it would be really a huge gift. And if you're not a notebook kind of person, even just to put them all in a drawer, just one single spot where there's less of that waiting for the mail or digging around your paperwork, it's in one spot where they can see most of what your financial aspect of your life is, would be a gift, a huge gift. Imagine if money came with a user's manual. If that intrigues you, the next best thing may be Your Money Vehicle, a book written by former NFL player Jedediah Collins. He was so much fun to chat with, and we talked a lot about great ideas, stories, and analogies from his book that can really help you on your financial journey. I asked him to explain this quote from the book. The secret to money is to think of it as a vehicle rather than a destination. I've always seen money as the objective, money as this noun that I'm chasing. It wasn't until I started to understand money better that money is this tool. It's a verb instead of a noun. It's the vehicle that is going to get us where we want to go. If you imagine the genie in the bottle coming out and granting you a wish, the genie question of, well, how much money would you want? 
a lot of people say a million, 10 million, a billion, whatever it is. The next question is why? If you have a number in mind, what is that lifestyle you're thinking about? And that's what I want people to start to focus on is not money is the secret. Money is going to provide you with things, lifestyle, peace of mind. What are those things? And those become your destination and objectives. And then we reverse engineer and begin to use money as the vehicle that is going to get us to that destination. And so I see it as both a kind of a limited and abundance mindset is if you see money as the natural and as your goal, money controls you. If you see it as the verb, then you control money. And that's where we really start to begin the education around using money and creating employees with your money. I've been reading a lot about micro-investing for a while, and it seems like a great idea for those of us struggling to put money away for retirement. And it's right in line with the idea that small change makes a big difference. So when I had the opportunity to chat with Peter Rishon, who's a financial advisor and host of the Rich on Planning podcast, I thought it was a great opportunity to ask an investment expert for his opinion on micro-investing apps like Acorns, which rounds up your purchases to the nearest dollar and invests the change. I think it's worth it. It's a novel idea and concept that you round your change up on every purchase and it goes toward your investment account. I think having savings done automatically is such a benefit because it's so hard to stick to a discipline and routine for many of us to make sure that we're doing it if we actually have to think about it and have to take action for it to happen. And so the fact that these apps and these micro investing services make it automatic, I think is a benefit. Now, you know, these have fees and expenses too, but I think that if you're making a couple hundred purchases in the course of a month, like most of us do, you know, you're going to see that there is growth above and beyond the cost for access through that particular app. I think Acorns is like a dollar a month or something. And, you know, with three or four purchases, you can easily overcome that cost and then begin to actually grow your investment account, which is pretty cool. One of the questions that haunts many parents is, will your kids have enough money? So I brought Paul Vassi back on to discuss this subject. He's the creator of Cash Crunch Jr., a fun board game that teaches kids about personal finance. He shared a lot of creative and fun ways parents can help their kids learn about money, even at a young age, without being financial experts themselves. Then he shared ideas for using financial struggles, like many are facing right now, as a teachable moment that also makes their situation a bit easier. You know, this is a perfect time to learn about money because everybody's worried about money. Instead of trying to take it on your own shoulders, you know, if your kids understand that, hey, money's tight, what can we do to save money? Let's have that conversation. And the kids can help in a lot of ways. And even if it's just, even if it's like they say five cents or 10 cents or something like that, you know, the parents know they're not in on their own and everybody's working together. And there's that love in the household that they're coming together under difficult circumstances. And I think that's a big part of it as well. And also the kids will probably be less likely to be wanting things. So there's less pressure on the parents to say no or give them what they want and then worry about the consequences. So open dialogue. Brian Ursu is author of Now What? A Practical Guide to Figuring Out Your Financial Future. He was so much fun to chat with. And of course, I loved one of his themes that runs through the whole book, which is math always wins. So here's a clip where he discusses compound interest and how it can help us win in retirement, regardless of our income level. How compound interest works is 
it's a mathematical, I don't know, bonanza. I don't know of a better word. It's just crazy how your money can double if you're earning you know, high enough interest and how that compounding really will put a younger person into scoring position later in life. Regardless of what your income level is or where you stand, you can use time and math to your advantage and be in scoring position you know, when you get to retirement age. So you don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or some other professional in order to live a life of meaning and be comfortable at retirement. If you're in financial trouble, there's an organization called Lift Rocket that might be able to help. It's easier than crowdfunding and a great alternative to a payday loan. During the Need a Lift episode, I spoke with the founders of Lift Rocket about how it works. When we designed how a lift would work, we said, what is it that's hard for people to do today if they use an alternative like GoFundMe? And the hardest thing is you might not know a lot of people who are in a position to give you money. So we said, let's make this really easy. We want to see that you can get a few people to make contributions. And we kept that down to three because that's a really small number. The amount they need to give you is determined by the size of the lift that you need. But in general, it's really small. We're looking for people who can give you 50 or or $100. And then the rest of the funding for your lift comes from something called the Lift Rocket Community Fund. And the idea is that the community fund is kind of like the big brother of your friends who has the resources to get you over the finish line. In the episode, Planning for Your First Home, Justine Chan, founder of livewithplum.com, shared lots of information about what to know before you buy. One of the biggest things people overlook when buying a home is the other costs besides the down payment. In this clip, Justine outlines some of those costs. The other things that you also have to consider is how much it costs to close on a property. And that typically is also a couple of percentage points, unless you get a mortgage that allows you to roll everything in. But that typically is a couple of percentage points, uh, which, you know, can add up to a significant amount of money. And, you know, it even includes things like moving, if you're going to pay for movers, saving up if you want to do any repairs to the apartment before you move in. All of that costs money and it usually costs Cost more than someone expects. And then the second thing is when people think of what the ongoing cost of ownership is going to be, people typically think, okay, this is what my mortgage is going to cost. And then this is what the tax is going to be. But what I often don't see people do is put aside some money for unexpected repairs that you have to make. Money for ongoing maintenance to the property, paying for insurance, just ensuring that you have, again, the full picture of what a property is going to cost you on a monthly basis so that you can budget appropriately and know how much you can afford to spend and therefore what kind of property you can afford to buy at this moment. Most experts in any field talk a lot about goal setting, but what we don't hear about quite as much is prioritizing those goals. Don Starks is a certified financial planner and author of Simplify Your Financial Life. She believes prioritizing is essential to reaching any goal. Here are some thoughts she shared during our interview. 
so often I think people get into this notion that, hey, I'm going to try to work towards all these things at one time. And with your money in particular, you know, your money only goes, you can only spend it once. You can't spend it three or four times. So having goals is great. And then sitting down either with yourself on your money date or with your partner and talking through each other's goals and saying, okay, well, what are our priorities? What is the thing we really need to focus on first? Because it's that focus that's going to get it done. And it's that in the case of a partnership, it's that mutual focus on one particular goal and getting it done that's going to make it happen. Otherwise, what happens is you spread yourself too thin. So likewise, you know, non-financially, if you're trying to, you know, lose weight and exercise and eat right and do all these various things, if you focus on one of those things and get it rock solid before you move on to other things, you'll have better success than sort of scattering your efforts across lots of different things. If you're one of the many trying to make ends meet right now, or one of the lucky ones who has what they need to survive, but is working on building wealth, house hacking could be a great solution. Andrew Kerr is host of the House Hacking Podcast. He joined me on the latest episode with some great info on what house hacking is all about. I was surprised at all the different ways you can use your home and your property for extra income. Here are some of his ideas. Most folks, when they think of house hacking, it's like, oh, I'm going to have like two, three, four, five roommates. There's two other good styles. Like the accessory dwelling unit is where you have this detached building on your property or you have an income suite. You know, think about that unfinished basement or maybe even finished basement or a mother-in-law suite. Then there's that more traditional small multifamily and you can do the live and flip. And then there's also this uh, work provided housing where you try to make a choice in your career to go with a job that will give you housing or housing allowance. But what you want to do if you're doing the rent hacking option is just make sure the landlord is comfortable with you subleasing. Most landlords, if you're honest and upfront, will be okay with that. To me, property hacking falls under house hacking, right? It's like, what can I do to reduce my housing costs? So, you know, folks will say, look, I'll rent out the garage and I'll put a lock in the garage so they know I'm not walking into the garage and they can't get into the house. Someone else I was reading where they've got a lot of land, so they actually put a hookup on the side of their property for 220 volt outlet. So that way someone can park an RV there and charge their RV. You know, if you just think about these options and say, look, what's my property like? And are there ways I can produce extra income with it by renting out unused space? Thanks to all of you who've taken the time to chat with me over the years. And on behalf of my listeners, we appreciate your time, experience, and expertise. To hear the entire interviews, click on the podcast heading at sensiblechat.com. I started this podcast because I wanted to help people open their minds to the world of budgeting and the freedom that comes with it. I've enjoyed hearing from so many of you and really appreciate the opportunity to help you with your budgets. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Thank you for responding. And most of all, thank you for taking control of your financial life. Happy anniversary to the production team. And remember, do the math, live the life. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sensible Chat. All the links and resources mentioned are in the show notes at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. To schedule your free budget consultation, click on the book a free call button in the upper right-hand corner at sensiblechat.com. Have a question or success story? Or how about a great budgeting idea? Sensible Bobby loves it all and wants to hear from you. Go to sensiblechat.com for all the contact information. That's sensible with the C. 